Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Phil Clay won the National Book Award in 2014 for Redeployment, a collection of short stories drawn from his own deployment in Iraq as a public affairs officer for the Marines. He wrote an essay for our winter issue, Tales of War and Redemption, in which he quotes from German theology and idly mentions paging through the sermons of medieval English abbots. But he opens talking about a graphic novel for kids, The Big Book of Martyrs, which, to quote him, depicts various saints and their horrible, horrible deaths, where God provides the good old walk-around-bleeding-horribly-for-days miracle or the rapid-gross-body-hair-growth miracle before God gets distracted and the saints die. Horribly. It's a very funny start to an essay that seems like it'll keep rolling on with a droll analysis of Catholic contradictions— And then Phil Clay reminds you that he's been to war, and he's seen horrible deaths and horrible suffering, and that whether you're young or old or a saint or wicked has no effect on when and how you'll die in war, in life. And what follows is a beautiful, moving look at suffering— not as sacrifice or atonement or something to strive for or even to cynically accept as the way the world works, but as a reminder of its inverse, joy, the joy at a life lived, and the joy, too, that is snuffed out by suffering. It's a thorny essay to unravel, and Clay is candid about his own contradictions, that the suffering of the children dying in Iraq was exacerbated by the American military, but also alleviated, that life can be so much less dramatic than death, than war, and that such a brutally honest essay was inspired by recalling a boyhood spent reading the gory tales of saints. Phil Clay joined us from New York to talk about tales of war and redemption. Thanks for joining us, Phil. Thank you. So we actually had a copy of the Big Book of Martyrs around from our fact check of your essay. And um, you did not misrepresent the horrible deaths of the saints. <laughs> it's something else, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I just skimmed through and read a couple and I was like, well, that's really, hmm, I can see why an 11-year-old yeah. would be attracted to this. <laughs> 
Um, so what struck you first when you read this as an 11-year-old? What, like, what drew you as, I guess, like a young Christian boy to these stories? Oh, I mean, I don't think that uh, my <laughs> my Christianity had much to do with it at all. Uh, I think I liked uh, the comic book art um, and uh, the drama of the stories. Um, you know, there's certainly some dramatic, violent stories in there. Yeah, to put it mildly. So um, in your essay for us, the Big Book of Martyrs is this door to a bigger discussion of faith in the midst of, of human failings and specifically in war. Um, and what I think is so interesting about the essay is that the spin that you give on the martyrs is less about what they have to show us about faith or their conviction in God and more about suffering, about how it, it just affects everybody. Yeah, and it's also about, I think, trying to think seriously about the way those stories would have been used, right? And, um, you know, when you read especially some of the really old martyr tales that are kind of have a mythological feel to them, uh, you know, reading them in, the, in, 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 you know, in the current day, they just seem like kind of ridiculous stories. Um, and yet I think that uh, it's, it's fairly obvious that these were deeply important to people, that they seemed to, to, to speak to certain truths of human experience that had not just something to do with suffering, but how people folded that suffering into a broader sense of, of what this world is and how we, we best approach it. Um, and so trying to, to check the kind of modern, skeptical, suspicious uh, faculties and think more deeply about what kind of uh, human experience these kind of stories could, could talk to us about, what is worth dying for and what is worth suffering for. I think whether you're sort of religious or not, um, if <laughs> if you lose that sense, you lose an important aspect of what it is to be human. And you talk about when you read this later as an adult coming back to it in the not comic version, um, reading it a little bit differently from when you'd first seen it as a kid, how when you were a kid, this seemed like ridiculous, like, God, come on, you only can go halfway. You can only like save them kind right. of the way and then they die. <laughs> That's the one theme that really struck me is like, you know, God will save St. Sebastian from, you know, being, uh, you know, shot to death. And then he gets bludgeoned to death later, you know. Um, you know, there's all, there's all these, these miracles that save saints, but it's like, you know, for like a minute. Um, or, you know, Saint Lucy, they're trying to like drag her off and God is protecting her and protecting her and protecting her. And then, you know, uh, it's like he looks away and they, you know, like stab her eyes out and murder her. And you sort of wonder like what <laughs> what is going on? You know, if, if if you went through the trouble of, you know, doing these miraculous miracles to protect uh, your saints up to a point, um, why do all these stories still end in not just death, but pretty horrible death? And it just seems silly to me at the you know, as a kid. So as an adult looking back on these tales, what changed for you? You got older, of course, but you also joined the military. Um, my deployment was not particularly uh, tough, right? Personally, I was a uh, public affairs officer, right? So I was a staff officer. Um, but one thing that, uh, you know, I definitely changed my 
perspective on these things with time um, was some of the actions that were taken by my chaplain, Chaps McLaughlin, who, uh, you know, one of his duties was taking care of the people at TQ Surgical, which was a large um, surgical facility in Ambar province, right? Uh, it was a life, limb, and eyesight-saving facility. So, you know, when you had injured people coming in from the battlefield, and not just um, Marines, but also sometimes you'd have uh, Iraqis, uh, the uh, staff there would would take care of them, try and stabilize them and send them on to a higher level of care. Uh, first month that I was there, we had a, a truck bomb explode outside our main gate. And I, you know, remember this just huge um, mass casualty event. We're, you know, bringing in kids on stretchers and uh, the surgeons actually ran out of uh, trauma tables. And so they were actually doing surgery on the floor, right? Um, and in a situation like that, uh, military triage goes into effect. So you need to, you know, prioritize the most urgent cases. And if you have a case where there's nothing that can be done, this person is going to die, you do what you can to make them comfortable. Um, but then you move on to, to you know, to people that you can save. Um, but you also don't want to just leave somebody alone while they're dying. And, uh, Particularly, I think uh, one of the things that hit everybody really hard was uh, seeing what happened to children in war. And my chaplain, Chaplain McLaughlin, a uh, great guy, uh, he took it upon himself to to minister to kids as they were dying. Um, he's a father himself. And after the first two kids, um, the CBs made him rocking chairs, combat rocking chairs, they called them, uh, so he could you know, sit in these rocking chairs and hold kids um, uh, while they died. And he did that for 11 kids while he was in Iraq. Yeah, that was one of the harder parts of your essay to read. You paint such a vivid picture of that. And you write about how afterwards you talk to chaps about that time a lot by email. Yeah. And he also wrote a book about his experience in war, which you quote in the essay. Mm -hmm. And it seems like your response to that time was a little bit different from the way that he responded to that experience. Yeah. I mean, it was it was kind of a revelation for me because I didn't I didn't have a, a sense of how the the experience affected him. And the experience really caused some pretty um, searching reflections on his part about what his relationship and responsibility to this was and, and, and uh, you know, how he as a religious person, as a, you know, human being is supposed to respond and feel about his participation in a war um, where, you know, horribly injured and dying children is, is, is one of the things that happens. Um, you know, whereas at the time is, you know, much younger. Um, and to me, particularly because during the time that I was in Iraq, things got better, right? The level of violence went down. The uh, surge of, of American troops in concert with the Ambar Awakening led to a, a significant decline in violence in the province. And so it felt like uh, what we were doing far from the, the you know, sort of civilian deaths as being something that implicated me, was something that justified me, right? Uh, the first, you know, horribly injured Iraqi child that I saw had been injured by a um, suicide truck bomb, 
set by, you know, the people, the very people that we were fighting. And so it seemed to me that, that um, you know, I didn't have to have the kind of reflections that, that, that Chaplain McLaughlin did. Uh, you know, I remember coming back and getting into an argument with somebody of a more anti-war bent and, you know, they were trying to uh, throw the, the civilian deaths in Iraq in my face as saying, like, how could you be part of this? Look at, at the suffering that's been caused by this war and me responding, you know, like I've actually <laughs> carried stretchers with injured Iraqi children, right, uh, to treatment. You know, what have you done? Uh, and that was sort of how I felt at the time, right, that because of <laughs> the, the very awfulness of uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, it kind of simplified uh, what I perceived as the kind of uh, moral questions about the war. Uh, you know, I later talked to a special forces guy about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. It was actually very interesting because even though for a lot of Americans, Afghanistan was the, is the kind of war that they understood more, right? Uh, we'd been attacked. The Taliban was sheltering al-Qaeda. And Iraq was the bad war, the war that was based on weapons of mass destruction that never materialized. For him, uh, fighting in Afghanistan felt really kind of just morally troublesome because uh, he was in a special forces unit that was going out to the same valleys every year and just getting into big gnarly firefights uh, and just chewing up, you know, these the, the latest wave of, of, you know, new Taliban recruits. Um, and they, you know, were never coming with money for roads or schools or anything like that because, you know, we didn't have it. There wasn't a lot of interest in, in doing that in, in uh, uh, the middle part of the last decade. Whereas in Iraq, uh, you know, and, and he said to me, you know, the thing about, uh, you know, like even as, as screwed up as the war was, the thing about al-Qaeda is that they always did make it easy, right? Like they were so awful. The things that they did were so despicable that it, it, it simplified things for you. Right? It made it seem as though what you were doing uh, was very morally clear, right? And you didn't have to have to think so deeply about how you might be implicated in in the after effects of, of violence. The question that I think about increasingly is, you know, if at a time when we'd cut back non-military aid uh, to Iraq, right, Obama. Uh, after 2014, cut economic assistance in half, and we're only ramping up military uh, engagement. What does it mean when your your primary engagement with a with another country is is through the use of violence, right? Even if in the moment it seems as though what you're doing makes perfect sense, um, and each individual action seems like it has a very clear uh, kind of set of moral stakes, and that you're in the right. Um, what are the longer term after effects and how do you have to think about that? And also how does it change you to be a part of something where, you know, the, the, the upshot is going to be violence in, in, in civilian areas? Right, right. You say that at one point it, you know, rather than challenging your Christian faith or provoking deep questions about who you were as a man or what kind of war you were in, it it didn't really seem like you had to justify yourself at all. Did you... Right change at any point? Like what, what tipped it for you that you eventually, I guess, lost that moral simplicity that that special forces guy was talking about? <laughs> well, I mean, one thing it was thinking more deeply about the war and learning more about it. Um, following the course of what's happened in Iraq obviously makes that very complicated, right? I certainly felt 
pretty good about what happened at the end of um, my deployment because violence had gone down so much. And a year later in 2009, the, the New York Times had this story about a rave on the banks of Lake Habania. So I was on the banks of Lake Habania and there was this town that I actually went went on a patrol with um, an Army National Guard unit uh, through and they had thrown this rave. There was like a DJ. There were, you know, kids playing in the water and the DJ is like playing Syrian pop music going like, who here's from, you know, Aramea? Who's here from Sadr City, right? And uh, a buddy of mine, the, he's also a um, marine writer, Michael Petrie, talks about seeing that article and, and thinking like, what the heck? Like, did we win? You know, like that's what we wanted. We wanted it to be safe enough to throw a rave on the banks of Lake Habanee and have kids from all over Iraq just having a good time. And then, of course, not that much later, you have the rise of ISIS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so events events in Iraq um, certainly changed things, further reflection. And then also just getting older and becoming a father. I have two sons now. Um, and I talk about in the piece my first uh, Memorial Day as a father and, uh, you know, holding my little baby rocking him and thinking about um, the Marines, you know, uh, that I knew who had died um, and uh, thinking about them not just as as Marines, uh, as the people that I had known, but also as as sons, right? And then thinking about the the Iraqi kids that that I'd seen um, who never had a chance at at adult life. Right. right. Um, at the end of the piece, you sort of return back to uh, the Book of Martyrs and sort of the feeling of of sort of viewing it in a different light now and seeing this relationship between all of the suffering and then joy. Can you talk a bit more about that, yeah. about, about what joy means to you and what that relationship is? Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, joy is uh <laughs> it's it's not a moment of um simple contentment. The 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 poet Jeffrey Hill distinguishes between um uh joy and enjoyment, right? Enjoyment is 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 possessive. Enjoyment says, you know, you please me in my current mood. Um I think joy is is, is more about a kind of openness. And um the the thing about the the martyrs' tales is seeing them not as people seeking death and seeking suffering, but that the suffering comes as a consequence of them seeking joy, right? In the context of a world that is brutal. You know, one of the things that, that changed for me being a father and, and, and relating to those stories differently was that, you know, sort of the the suffering that I saw it was easy to view abstractly and to view it as, you know, um, something that I could kind of ledger up, right? Uh, here is, you know, here is the suffering that happened as expressed in statistics at the beginning of my deployment to Iraq. And here is the, the you know, substantially less amount of violence in Ampar province at the end. Um, and so if you, you know, you work out that tally versus paying close attention to, you know, the weight of a of a individual human life, and and um, understanding that weight isn't simply about understanding the suffering that could happen, right? Which happens in the context of war, often in 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 a flash and a bang, and then in a 
sometimes slow and drawn out death in a combat hospital. But, um, but also in, in, in terms of, of, you know, the joy that, that, that such a life brings and, and the promise that it has within the context of a family and a community. Phil Clay's essay, Tales of War and Redemption, ran in our winter issue, which you can still grab on newsstands or on our website, theamericanscholar.org. There's a link on our episode page, along with a list of writers, Christian or otherwise, veteran or not, whom Phil suggests reading after this. So thanks for listening. Next week, we'll be talking about Kreft, which, as our guest will tell you, ain't your childhood arts and crafts. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.